Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. Have you ever rated or reviewed something online? You know, there's all kinds of ways to do that now. We've got, well, we've got Google reviews. You can go over to Google and drop a review on like a business or a place that you like to visit. Or there's, there's uh, sites like Yelp, right, where you can go out and you can post a review. We can do these kinds of things. It's, it's, it's kind of fun, actually. It's kind of fun to post reviews. I just got an email, what, week before last, I think, like, I got this email saying, like, your review of such and such has been viewed over 1,000 times. Thank you for helping the community or whatever. And there's probably some of you out there that are like, huh, only 1,000. I'm a professional reviewer, you know. I've got way more than that. You know, but it is. It's kind of fun to let our opinions be known. But I want us to start thinking about that this morning is how we think of when we review things, when we rate things. I just thought we'd start off. Let's look at a couple of fun ones. All right, let's look at a couple of fun ones to kind of put us in the spirit of this. This one was kind of funny. This guy reviewed a local restaurant. He's, he said, one star, one star review, bad, one star. Waitress is rude. Commented to make her aware of the poor quality of the pancakes I ordered. Only response is, well, you ate one. <laughs> of course, I was hungry, but not for a pancake that you have to saw through. I'll spend money elsewhere for breakfast. All right, we're just getting warmed up. Let's look at the next one. All right, I think this is probably an Amazon, yep, Amazon review. One star for the pool, but why? Bought this, and it didn't come with water. <laughs> Livid, it cost more to fill than it cost to buy. A little bit of research would have gone a long way, buddy. All right, let's look at this. Okay. <laughs> this one is for the Barrington Police Department. Five-star review. They were very gentle when they handcuffed me. And their patrol vehicles are roomy and new. Overall, very professional. We'll definitely get arrested by them again, for sure. This guy is a connoisseur of the incarceration process right here. All right, well, then there's, then there's this one, which is probably my favorite. One star, I've never received the product. Empty hand. I thought that was hilarious empty hand. So, but it's interesting, right? You know, we all have different criteria for how we rate and review things. For some of us, when we buy a pool online, we're just looking for solid construction. Some of our criteria might be, it's got to come fully filled. I don't know. We all have different expectations. So, let's flip that for a second, though. How many of you like it when you are reviewed? Or rated? How do we feel about that, especially if it's not necessarily the most positive opinion of us? A few years ago, Chris and I were, were working on a house, we were redoing a house, and we went to Chick-fil-A for lunch, something like that, and we were just tired. We'd been working on this place, we had all five boys with us, and we were covered in, you know, plaster dust and paint and we're tired and we probably didn't smell that great and so we drag all five of the boys into a Chick-fil-A take the two littlest ones send them into the Chick-fil-A play place and we go get food a little bit later as I am uh, as, as we're getting ready to go sit down and eat I go into the play place to get the two little guys and I've got Luke sitting there on the bench you know they got these benches next to the shoe cubbies and all that I'm putting his shoes on and sitting next to us on the bench is this little girl and her mom and I hear this little girl, she looks up at her mom and she goes, Mommy, 
Why did you say that those people have too many kids? And I'm looking down at Luke's feet, and I'm just like, shut up, just shut up, just get the shoes on, get him out of here, you know, don't say anything. I, I, oh, I'm sure I wouldn't have said anything, but it was like a little window. And, and, and maybe you think we're, I think we're crazy, you know, I think we're nuts to have all these kids, but sometimes you get a little window into what people are actually saying or think about you, and how does that make us feel, right? Here's the reality. Nobody likes to be rated negatively. Nobody enjoys that. It is not fun. It is not fun to have negative opinions, insinuations, or perspectives about you. And every now and then you might get a little window into what somebody might say or think. Because when we look at each other as people, just like as we're rating pools on Amazon, our opinions, our standards, our expectations are subjective because we are all different people and we're all looking for different things. So my question to sort of kick us off this morning is this, what is your rating system? What is your rating system? When you encounter people around you, when you would go to restaurants and come into contact with businesses and other people, how do you perceive them and how do you rate them or how would you even just in your mind review them? Just as a quick no, I mean, I, I think in this age of social media and everything's got stars and opinions, things are getting pretty crazy. There's an app out there. Maybe some of you have heard of this. I heard about this years ago called People, okay? Of course, it's not spelled right because nothing on the internet can be spelled right. It's always got to be some weird spelling of a normal word. People with two E's. This is an app, at least when it launched, that you can actually rate people on this app. I could go up to Rob and give him two stars. I could go up to Chuck and give him three stars based upon my own subjective. I wouldn't do that, Rob. You'd five stars all the way, man, seriously. But you could literally just assign a review to people. This to me is awful. This to me is like taking humanity and just stripping it right out of the whole process. I think this is terrible. So I went ahead and fixed the logo. I thought that this was a little bit more appropriate for this particular app. But it gets us thinking because when we come into contact with people, how do we rate and review them? So what we're going to see today as we get started is Paul. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 9 and 10. I'm supposed to do chapters 9 and 10 this morning. <laughs> this is going to be fun. So hang in there. We've got a lot of scripture to cover, and but we're going to see something that's really close to Paul's heart. Paul, beginning in this section, we're going to see how his heart absolutely aches for the Jewish people because Paul himself was a Jew and he desires for them to be saved. And the primary question we're going to begin asking this morning is this. If God had promised salvation to Israel, yet so few Jews were being saved, how could Jesus truly be the fulfillment of God's plan? How could Jesus truly be the fulfillment? Might seem like a good question. And Paul has the answer for us this morning. So let's go ahead and look at it. Once again, we are reading about the Church of Rome. In the Church of Rome, we have both Gentile believers and we have Jewish believers. Two different cultures coexisting now under the banner 
of Christ. So let's see how Paul kicks things off. This morning we are going to look at a lot of chapter 9. We're going to read a good chunk of chapter 9 and just a bit of chapter 10. But I encourage you, go home and read the whole thing in its its entirety. Because right now we just kind of have to hit the big messages that Paul's trying to teach us today. Let's start with verse 1 in chapter 9. Paul writes, With Christ as my witness... I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Pretty strong language. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Let's just pray we can go home, right? No, Paul is just getting started. He is setting the stage. There's a lot of pre-work to be done to deal with this situation and this overarching question. Does God keep his promises? Does God keep his promises? promises. This is the big question. Now, if you, I want us to just see, look at Paul's wording in verses 4 and 5. You know, he, his heart aches for the people of Israel. They were the ones that were given the law. They were the ones that had covenants made with them. They were the ones whom Christ came through. And his heart goes out to them. And he also makes a point, and I think this is important, where he says, These words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is speaking from a position of authority and truthfulness. And he's just getting ready to get started. So let's go on here just a little bit. There's going to be some interesting stuff we're going to go through. And this is kind of a bit of a history lesson from Paul. Okay? Let's start in verse 6. Paul writes, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No! For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor, Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, she received a message from God. And this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. And in the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Now, this is a very loaded section, okay? And I almost feel like when I finish reading that, I have to take a deep breath. (gasps) Because it's like a history lesson. Almost. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I'll admit to you real quick, when I was studying for this message, I struggled with this section a little bit. And then I started reading into it, and I realized what my problem was. 
I realized why I was having a hard time with it, and it's because I was reading it from my own perspective as a Gentile. In this section, Paul is speaking like a Jew. He is speaking from a Jewish perspective. And so the concepts that he lays out right here in brief fashion would click perfectly with the Jewish Christians because he is drawing from his education and knowledge of the Old Testament, of the prophets, of the things that came before Christ. And there is this concept in the prophetic writing, specifically in Isaiah, we're going to look at here in a second, which gives us a picture of what the church looks like. Let me, let me say this first. When we look at the language that he uses, where he says things like children of God, children of the promise, what that means, what that is referring to is not the physical descendants. That is those that are saved. That is those that have received salvation from God, which praise God, that's you and me now. Amen. That is an amazing thing. But when Paul is doing this sort of exposition, there is a concept which the Jewish Christians would have pulled right out of his words, and it is this. We're going to fast forward briefly to Romans 9.27. Paul, in this verse, quotes the prophet Isaiah, who says this, and concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. Even though they are innumerable, only a small portion will be saved. You see, there is this concept that comes through the history that Paul is relating and is illustrated in this quote of Isaiah. And that is what we now call the Israel within Israel. And you see, Paul stair steps through. We start with Abraham, who, to whom the promise was made, but... Abraham's descendants were split. You had Ishmael and you had Isaac. The promise went through Isaac. Through Isaac there was Jacob and there was Esau. The promise went through Jacob. Over the years Israel would be carried off into captivity and they would have people that would marry the locals, marry the Persians, stay there. Some of them would come back to Jerusalem and it would just split and split and split. And over time you have this concept of this winnowing that happens down through the years to the point where where Paul is now, it has been opened to the Gentiles and those that have, that have found Christ are now the children of God. So the question, at least that pops into my mind and Paul is actually going to address in this next section, it, it's, it's pretty obvious, it's pretty understandable. Is that fair? Is it fair for God to seemingly arbitrarily pick and choose. I mean, what did Esau ever do? The scriptures just said before he had done anything good or bad, God says, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. What is up with that? Let's take a look. Let's take a look, starting in verse 14. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, 
God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. Those are really difficult words. Those can be very, very difficult words. And we can get caught up in the semantics of exactly what Paul is insinuating right here. But the question that really rises from this that we're going to address in just a second is, how can God punish someone that cannot resist his will? If God chooses, what does this actually mean in terms of humanity's response? And of course, (laughs) I would get chapter 9, okay? Because we are about to deal with one of the most controversial sections in Scripture. We are about to move into a section that is that theologians have been hitting their heads against a wall, that they have been debating and yelling at each other for almost 2,000 years over exactly what Paul meant with this next section of Scripture. So as we go through it, though, what I want us to see is not necessarily the controversial sections. What we want to see is what is the overarching lesson that Paul is about to teach us because he's pretty plain about it in his meaning. So that is what we are going to look at today is what Paul is laying out. We're going to go to Romans. Of course, we're in Romans chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 20. Verse 20, Paul writes these words. Listen to what he says. So does, does God do this? And he says, no, don't say that. Literally, no, don't say that. You're asking the wrong question. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right To show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. So a number of years ago, there was a potter who was a master potter. You know, it's actually a pretty detailed skill. Has anybody ever done pottery before? Has anyone ever given that a shot? I have tried it and failed miserably at it. It is a lot harder than it looks because you have this spinning thing. It's like a giant lazy Susan. And you have to sort of sculpt the clay as this thing spins. It moves and you've got to keep your hands nice and wet. And it's a very, very difficult skill to have. But there was this potter who was a master of it. And he had a shop where he both worked and he displayed his work. And it was a very elaborate thing. Rows and rows of shelves of just these beautiful ornate pots with intricate designs and carvings and inlaid stones. Just beautiful work of a master craftsman. And one and another thing he liked to do is he would oftentimes host tours. He wouldn't give the tours, but people would come and they would just sort of look at his work. Well, one time he had an elementary school field trip 
come to his shop. And you can imagine, you know, the teacher's going around, no, don't touch anything, kids, don't knock anything off the walls. And they're looking around, and he's back there working. And eventually, they got to go back and ask him some questions. And so the teacher comes back and, you know, asks him, how long have you been doing this? What's your inspiration? You know, all those sorts of questions. But after a bit, they gave the kids a chance. One little kid puts up, puts up their hand, and teacher calls on him, yeah, what's your question? And the kid looks at the potter and she says, which one of these pots is your favorite? Which is your favorite pot? So the potter stops for a second and he reaches down and he picks up this ugly looking little pot. Very worn, very old, very rough, cracks in the finish. It's full of water. This was the pot that he would dip his hands in to form the clay. And he holds this pot up and he says, this one, this one's my favorite. And of course, you can imagine all the kids are like, what? That thing's ugly. Look at all these beautiful ones over here. Why'd you pick one? Why'd you pick that? And he says, this one is my favorite because this is the one that I use. This is the one that I use. And I think this story plays right into this section of scripture because of two reasons, because of two lessons that we can take. Number one, God does not value the same things we value. When we think about how we rate things, when we think about how we review things, when we think about our own personal criteria for whether or not something is good enough, God does not see things the same way. He has his own value system. And number two, God is in charge of what is made and how it is used. God is the potter. We are the clay. Ultimately, God is in charge. And that is what the Apostle Paul is illustrating in this section. God is in charge. God has the authority. He is the director of the show. And now we like to think, like I do, that I have some small control over what happens around me. It's just a little. Some small control. Nobody likes to feel helpless, right? And it's true. We have free will. And the decisions that we make affect us and the lives of those around us, right? But, but in the bigger scheme of things, what control do we really have? I mean, we can't control economies. We can't control foreign wars or conflicts. Heck, I can't even control the decision of some of my family members who are doing things where they live destructively. I can't even control that. How in the world am I going to control my own salvation. It's just not possible. God is in charge and God is in control. There was an old country preacher I remember from when I was growing up who always used to say this. This is so good. He used to say, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's going to do what God's going to do. And I think there's a lot of truth to that simple statement because God is all-powerful. There is an old word I want to introduce us to, which we don't use too much because we don't live in a monarchy. (laughs) We live in a democratic-ish society. And so we're not super familiar with this word. But this is an old word. The word is sovereignty, which means supreme power or authority. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Indisputably, unstoppably, completely powerful and with full authority. God is sovereign and he is in charge. Let's look ahead a little bit. Let's keep moving on here. Starting in verse 30, Paul continues and he writes, what does all this mean? 
probably should have started with that. Puts it all together. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, what? Never succeeded. And why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Who is the stone? Christ is the stone in Jerusalem. You see, the interesting thing about coming into contact with Jesus, as opposed to any other person in all of history, is Jesus forces us to make a choice. Nobody walks away from Jesus the same way. We sang a little bit earlier, we sang the song Build My Life, where we talked about the strong foundation that Christ is to be built upon. There are really only two options when you come into contact with Jesus. You either build on the stone or you stumble over it. Two options. We never walk away from Christ the same. And what Paul is saying here is that the Gentiles built their house on the rock and were made right by their faith, while Israel failed to succeed because of what they were doing. The word literally translates to works. It literally translates to that. So they did not succeed because of what they were doing. Paul elaborates on this a little bit more, starting at the beginning of the 10th chapter, where he says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The very reason that the law was first given, and we could dig into this, everybody. I mean, there's a, the law is a very deep thing. We could talk about the different kinds of laws and all sorts of details around that. But the point here is, is that Jesus met the requirements in his perfection. The law is fulfilled. The rites, the rituals, the sacrifices, all of those observances, the very reason that they were created is met, fulfilled, and completed in Jesus Christ. And it is now through faith in the completionist rather than in trying to do it that we find salvation. It is through that. Let's go ahead and move on. This is the part where Paul brings it all together. Everything that we've been talking about this morning, he summarizes it all. This is in chapter 10. Verse 9, he says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved.
That is God's rating system. That is God's standard of measurement. We see a few things in this section. Everyone who calls on the Lord, who believes in their heart, and who declares from their mouths will be saved. Anybody in here, how many of us use Facebook? I know a bunch of us do. Do you use Facebook? Is it not satisfying to click that little thumbs up button and get that little sound or whatever it is that it makes? I don't know. I find that to be really satisfying. You know, it's like a little wee sort of thing, present response, little popping sound. This is God's thumbs up right here. This is God's standard of measurement. This is what he is looking for. There's, an, there's a saying that I grew up hearing, and I think that this applies to this perfectly, and I want to share this with you today. It's not who you are. It's whose you are. It is not the things that you do. It is not the boxes that you check. It is who you have given yourself to and who you believe in your heart will save you. So my question for us today As we put all of this together, I want us to consider this. How do you rate yourself? How do you you rate yourself in your relationship with Jesus? When you look at what you are doing and where you are, being honest, how do you rate yourself? I've had so many friends over the years and people that I have cared about tell me things like, you know, well, I'm good enough. I go to church. I volunteer my time. I do this and I do that. Folks, if that's our standard... That is no different than trying to keep the law. That is us rationalizing ourselves by the things that we do rather than the things that we believe. I, um, I, want, I want to illustrate this really quick with, with an experience that I had. You see, my dad, my dad is a mall Santa, Okay. And if you see him, it would make complete sense, right? I mean, he looks the part. He's a real beard Santa. So he's actually got the really long white beard, which like when he goes out, he like fluffs it and weird stuff. And it gets all like really big and poofy. He's awesome. He does a great job. And the kids love him. He'll bring them over and sit him and say, ho, 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 ho. What do you want for Christmas, little one? Ho, ho. He's great. He's awesome at it. But you have a lot of interesting experiences working with people doing this kind of thing, you see a lot of different things. And sometimes I know his heart just breaks, but there was, there was one child who he told me about that came and sat on his lap. And this child was excited, was really, really stoked, sitting on Santa's lap. Santa's asking him, you know, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, Santa, I really want this. As soon as the kid turned and looked at the camera and the flash went off, mom reaches out from the side, grabs the kid, says, we got to go, and rushes off. You know what that look in her eyes? You've seen that look in, their, in people's eyes around Christmas time? That like blank look of horror? You know, as we've got to do all the stuff. We've got to get all the gifts. We've got to wrap all the things. And you know, going crazy, right? And I've seen that same look at like Easter egg hunts and different things. And you just have to wonder. Because I've been in this boat before where it's like, okay, it's Christmas time. We've got to get the stuff done. The kids need pics with Santa. We've got to make sure all the gifts are perfect. The tree's not up. we got, you know, and it becomes... Rather than the love and the joy and the celebration and the family time and the celebration of Christ, it becomes nothing more than a season of checking boxes. Because we got to do the things. No real heart in it. No real joy in it. We're just checking the boxes. So my question, 
honestly for all of us. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? We, do we really believe? Have we called out to God, the Savior of the world, and do we believe in our hearts that He is who He said He is, or are we just checking boxes? I don't know. Only you can answer that question. And if you're going through that season, because I've gone through those seasons, it happens, I think, to all of us, then it's time to call out to God. It is time to open our mouths and to just say, Oh, Lord, wake me up. Wake me up. Bring me back. Light that fire again inside of me. Because that's what he wants. He doesn't, he's not looking for ways to isolate us. He's not looking for ways to push us out or separate us. Oh, you're not doing what I want you to do. You're out of here. No, he wants to reconcile us to him. So don't look at that. If the answer is, yeah, I'm just checking boxes. Don't look at that as, a, oh, I'm so terrible oh, or anything. That's a wake-up call. That is an opportunity to draw closer to a God who loves you and wants you as close to him as he can possibly get you. Use it. And also, coming back to it, I just want to remind us as we close, it is not who we are. It is whose we are. There's nothing we can do because he has already done all that it takes. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the lessons that you teach us through Scripture, God. Lord, I would just pray today that we would truthfully examine ourselves and that we would truthfully look inside and consider what it is that prompts us to do what we do. Lord, we, are, we, we love you very much and it is a good thing to be able to serve and to be able to do things. But Lord, ultimately, I would pray that each and every one of us would develop inside of our hearts just a burning desire to know you more, a strong, solid belief in you, God, for who you are and what you have done. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and his example, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these truths, to record these things for us, Lord, so that we would have these instructions and to know that you are in charge and that we can always fully rely on you. Lord, thank you for opening that Israel within Israel to include all of us, Lord. And we are so thankful for the salvation that you provide. May this week, Lord, we just focus on drawing close, on getting as close to you as possible because you are good and because you want us to be near you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.